Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Today, I've got Andrew Lenoy, my business partner in studio, and I've um, been thinking about this interview for a while. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, Andrew, getting to the real estate investing part of his life had quite a journey and and I think this is going to be inspiring to a lot of people because um, it doesn't really matter where you started or where you came from Um, you know the path leads wherever you want it to and um, Andrew's background's interesting every time I hear him tell this story I'm just I'm amazed at where he started and where he ended and so I think this is just going to be inspiring and and we should have a fun conversation today and I'm excited to uh, introduce you to my partner Andrew Lenoy so Andrew I thank you for being in studio with us yeah thanks for having me yeah it should be fun to be here yeah so, right, digging right in, four questions. Who's had the greatest impact on your life? I think, um, I think my mom and dad had the greatest impact in my life. And I think, um, you know, my dad was, uh, my dad's father was a uh, plumber and electrician. And my dad ended up going into that, into those trades. Um, he actually owned a little bit of real estate for a while early on. He owned a little, I think it was a fourplex or a five unit building in New Hampshire where we grew up. Um, he managed it himself. It wasn't a good experience for him. So I think that steered him away from real estate. Uh, and he also owned his own plumbing company for a while. And I don't know how long it was. It must have been maybe three or four years or something like that. And he ended up closing it down. He, he retired as the plumbing inspector of the city we, we were in in New Hampshire. Um, and my mom was a nurse. And both of them uh, worked really hard through their through their whole career. And they raised three kids. And, you know, we were probably lower middle class. And so, you know, vacation was get in the car and drive to the lake or yeah. stuff like that, which was... Um, great as a kid, you don't know, you know, what you don't have or have. Right. Yeah. So, um, I think, I think it really was my parents because they really, um, you know, it, it was like, Hey, Hey, I want, I want a new bike. And it's like, all right, how are you going to get it? Yeah. You're going to work for it. Right. And so, uh, I think that instilled definitely, uh, some sort of, some sort of work ethic in my life. So I would say my mom and dad. That's awesome. If you could narrow it down to one thing that's had the greatest impact on your success, what would that be? Um, I think some of it's, some of it may be the, just, just working really hard, um, through a lot of my, a lot of my career. Some of it I think is, um, uh, I think I'm very curious with people in general. Mm-hmm. So when I'm meeting someone new for the first time and I'm, I'm always asking a lot of questions and where mm-hmm. kind of my mind always goes is, um, being a connector and someone yeah. says, well, Hey, I'm. I, I, I'm, I'm so-and-so and I do this and, and I'm like, well, have you met Dave? Cause yeah. Dave does something similar to that. And then it's trying to figure out how to connect someone to that. Yeah. So I think I've always been kind of a, a connector, but I'm, but I'm genuinely very curious about people. And I think that leads to asking a lot of questions. And so you find out a lot about people mm-hmm. through that process. Um, I'm sure we all know people that just don't ask questions. Right. right. Yeah. And that's, that's just how people are wired. So it's not a right or wrong, but I think, um, I think I've had some pretty good relationships because of that, just really connecting. And then it's one step further is, well, how, you know, so-and-so really needs something and how mm-hmm. do I help them with that? Yeah. It's like that Zig Ziglar quote, right? Yeah, totally. Just try to help, just try to help people. And so some of it, that was the easiest for me. It was never a challenge. It just kind of came, kind of came naturally. Yeah. I, I remember, I don't know, when we first started working together, you probably still have it, but on your computer, you've got the Zig Ziglar quote. Why don't you say that for... Yeah, I think the quote is, uh, it's, it's something the effect of it. You can have everything you want in life if you just help other people. It's something, I'm, yeah. I'm paraphrasing, but it's something along those lines. It's just like, you know, it's like the it's like the Gary Vaynerchuk book. It's like, you know, jab, jab, hook, hook right, or whatever yeah. that is. It's yeah, like, yeah. just give, try to find ways to give. And it doesn't have to be um, complicated or complex. It's just be, yeah. you know, add value, add value to someone's life. Yeah, I've noticed that um, just watching you in conversations over the years, you're, um, you know, so many times in life, Hey, how you doing today? Great. And it's like, nobody, you, 
people don't really care. Right. It's like the go-to, it's kind of like, hey, what do you do for a living? Nobody, like most of the time when people are asking that, they don't care. But I've noticed with you, you really take the time to get to know somebody. And, and I don't think that that's just strategic with you in order like to build your business. That's not why you did it. You just have a genuine curiosity. And I love that. Yeah. It's pretty I think cool. That's, I think it's true. What was your greatest setback and what did you learn from it? So I think one of the setbacks I had um, when um, when I was a talent agent at William Morris, um, there were kind of two different kinds of people in the in that world. You were either a signer or you were a servicing agent. And um, I think a lot of the signing agents, so those are the ones that would go after the bands, right? And they would sign the bands um, and then they would build a team and someone would have to go service those clients. And it was really sexy to be a signing agent, okay. right? Like that's what everyone wanted to be is they wanted to be the ones and then kind of delegate the work off. Um, I was okay as a signing agent. It wasn't great, but I was, mm. but I found out I was a really good servicing agent mm. there. So I had my own clients, but I also serviced the other clients there really well. Um, and that took, and that took a little while. I think it was a mindset shift at some point where I'm like, well, I can do some of the signing part, but really 75% of my business is doing the servicing. Um, and I ended up, you know, I think one of one a couple of the years there was, you know, doing $40 million of business with other clients and probably one of the top earners in the department hmm. just based on servicing. So they, you could kind of carve out a little niche there. And then the people who, you know, the other agents were like, well, this guy's invaluable, yeah. right? Because this is, this is a, a huge chunk of my client's work is coming from yeah. this guy. So um, kind of a setback because you kind of have your, your heart set on one thing yeah. and you know, there's always, um, it's always kind of the forks in the road, right? Yep. Yeah. That's the thing at investing for freedom. We're constantly talking about what do you really want? Why do you want it? What are you going to do to get it? Measure results, but then adjust, right? Because a lot of times what we think we want in life as was your story. I mean, it's as you really move through things, it's funny because sometimes that shiny object or the title or the power position um, isn't necessarily your core strength. So it's such an interesting point. Yep. What is the piece of advice you find yourself sharing the most? Um, I think it's, I think it's, um, it kind of goes back to being a connector and it's really listening. Mm -hmm. um, we have a few good common friends who one of the, I'm trying to think of the exact phrase, but it's like, you know, everyone, a lot of people in conversations, they're so eager to, they're not listening. Mm. They want to just jump into their next question or whatever yeah. it is. Um, so it kind of goes back to being um, just curious and being mm. a connector and listening. Because yeah. if you really listen and you try not to, because I think it's an in inherent in us, right? We want to, you Respond. say something and I'm like, oh, well, I have to say this. Yeah. And so I want to get it out <laughs> yeah. without actually listening to the rest of what you're saying or the rest of the sentence or the rest yeah. of the paragraph. Um so I'd say that's that's probably a, a good piece of advice that I learned through other people is just um, just try to listen more yeah. and understand you know someone's perspective and um, I think that along with it's such it's uh, I can't remember the quote but it's like everyone's battling something right mm -hmm. and so you're on the street and you walk by someone and they're having the worst day and you're mm -hmm. like what's wrong with you you know yeah. and it's like well their mom died this morning yeah. right or something happened and um, and I, and I have to remind myself of that because I, because you will think naturally kind of forget that, but, um, everyone's going through stuff, Yeah, you know? So totally. I think, uh, I think those two things are, are pretty important, at least in my, my life. Yeah. That's so interesting. Shut up and listen and be curious. <laughs> I'm yeah. paraphrasing obviously. Yeah. So we'll I will make a shirt. Yeah. I like it. Start our own Amazon store. That'd be great. <laughs> So I kind of want to, usually we, we go back to the beginning, but I, I kind of want to just have a quick discussion on, um, you know, so Andrew and I, for those of you that don't know, um, we're business partners at Four Peaks Capital Partners. We've got a um, couple companies, Park Place Communities Management and Park Place Construction. Um, we're in the affordable housing space. Um, do you want to just talk about what that is and what that looks like today? Yeah, I think, um, so we've been, we've been, doing this as a company, I mean, you've been in the space for probably about 13 years now, just on you and you and Kara and, yeah. and all yep. prior to Subcrash, Subprime. Um, so we've probably, we're, we're going on six years of doing this. And um, when I was buying a bunch of single family homes back in 2009, 10, 11, 12, that time period, um, 
things really just kind of stopped pen- penciling out on the single families and it got really expensive. And if you're trying to um, do a, something for a buy, buy and hold, it was really difficult to start to find um, assets that worked. And so that's really how um, I got into it as I had a, a friend who bought some parks and really took a good look at that model. And, and about six, seven years ago, it was like, that space was not as talked about as mm-hmm. you know everyone everyone was really interested in single family or multifamily or yeah. commercial and things like that um and the affordable housing space i think was i don't want to say it was a redheaded stepchild but it just wasn't talked about as much and it yeah. just wasn't as known so um you know and through all this um i think i think uh, uh, affordable housing has done done fairly well through all of covid-19 and yep. and all of, all of that i mean i i certainly wouldn't want to be a office building owner right now right. a lot of retails getting hit pretty hard um, so it's interesting to see you know we've got the the markets at the markets booming we've got um, residential real estate you know i talk to people all the time and always ask them um, hey in salt lake city like like here, here in Phoenix, if you've got a home at three hundred and fifty grand, there's ten or twenty offers on it. Yeah. Anything that's below a jumbo loan, um, and so we haven't hit the top of the the residential real estate market yet. And so when I talk to other other folks in markets, it's kind of the same thing, whether it's Salt Lake or mm-hmm. San Francisco or uh, Austin, Texas, or wherever. So there's all these just interesting uh, things happen. You've got uh, rates are at all time low. The stock market is booming. Real estate, we're 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 not really, um, we're certainly not in a real estate crash. I don't know right. if we're technically in a recession yet. We don't know what what's going to come out on the other side of this. But um, you've got you know all of these big 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 companies that have been around for a long time, like Ben's Warehouse and mm-hmm. Cheesecake Factory, that are starting to default on yeah. you know on on loans and bonds and things like that. Um, I don't. I don't think uh, most of the courts have even been open really no. through a lot of this, or maybe it's just certain priority things. So it's like, um, what does this look like in six to twelve months when some of that's been chewed through, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, there's been you know, like what did Ken? What did you know? Our, our good buddy Ken said that there's thirty percent of mortgages are going to fail or something like yeah. that. Some huge number. I mean, that's you know, that's everything, right? That's yep. residential. That's commercial. So yeah. Um, certainly in unprecedented times but um just trying to watch all of these mm-hmm. variables and things yeah. and just because no one knows no one yeah. knows what's going to happen but um i think interest rates are going to stay low for a while sure um I, I don't think we know the level of damage to right. the economy yet with with all the money that's being printed um whether it's hyperinflation or we just yeah no one knows right well i heard um jerome powell i think it was yesterday uh, the Fed chairman, he said, he said the only way to really get through this is to make sure that people, everyday people, have access to credit, which means, That's you know, the, uh, they're they're going to do everything they possibly can to keep financing and lending because if people can't borrow money, then they won't spend. Right. And there's just so many interesting trends, and a lot of times, um, and I love, I love where you go with this because. You know, a lot of times, even when I'm listening to whether it's Jerome Powell or anybody, it's like they're they're talking such macro, high level, wordy conversations, right? You've got to be a a, a finance guy from MIT right. to understand Economist, it. But the reality right. is, I love where you go with it because at the end of the day, um, the average American, everyday people like us, just you know, what can we do? And when you're even talking about single family, I talk to so many people that still think right now is a great time to get into single family real estate investing. And I'm like, I'm not saying it is or isn't. Um, but you know, it's like what Kiyosaki always says is that when somebody says, Hey, would I be a good investor? He's like, I don't know. What do you know about investing? Right? Right, right. So you can still, I get that you can still find good single family deals potentially, yep. but they're rare. Um, and with the, so I literally saw yesterday or the day before that um, Phoenix from May to May, 9% increase. We're number one in the nation. For, for housing price increase. Yeah. So if you've got a million dollar home, just simple math. Yep. Your house just went up by ninety thousand dollars yeah, in in twelve months. That's crazy. Yeah, that is. Um, and so like to, to your point, we're not really in a real estate um, crash. Right. Real estate's high, but we're pumping all this money. So for the average person though, and so back to affordable housing, 
I think what's really going to matter at some stage, and none of us have a crystal ball, but this can't go on forever. Right. Housing prices can't keep going up 9% per year. And that's Phoenix. Not every market's that. But I think, you know, even a, a stable market's 3 to 4% per year. Like housing prices can't keep going up. Wages aren't keeping up with that pace. Right. In fact, unemployment's at an all-time high. So how how can housing prices keep increasing and unemployment be so high or wages, even if unemployment wasn't high, wages are flat. Right. But everything else is going up. And so how long can this really go on? And so back to the affordable housing conversation, I think whatever it is that you're in in real estate investing, um, you know, just looking at that um, critical non-optional form of housing is important. Yeah. And it's also back to whether real estate's a good deal or not, like single family. Um, the answer is maybe depending yeah. on the deal, <laughs> totally. just like you were saying, but it's also know where you are in the market cycle. Mm-hmm. Like, are we at the bottom of the market? Not even close. The yeah. bottom of the market was right. after the subprime crash. And so here we are 12 years mm-hmm. later, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like, that's, and that's also, I think, a record, right? You, yeah. Usually there's some sort Seven of correction. Cycles. So is COVID a correction? <laughs> is it the beginning of a correction? We don't, we don't know, yeah. right? Yeah. And that's, so, that's such an interesting point on the cycles too. And I remember like literally for years, people saying, you know, roughly every seven years, right? And we're 12 into it, to your point, we're almost double the normal cycle. And so, yeah, it's just, it's an interesting time. But the one thing, so back back to the affordable housing and the, the manufactured space specifically, you know, when COVID happened and even working through this, um, you know, just making sure that we protect our assets and we still don't know what's coming, Right. Um, so, you know, we're, we're putting certain things in place to make sure that we have the cash flow to get through everything. Um, but at the same time, we haven't had high defaults. Um, doesn't mean it's not coming, but the reality is in general, not coming, but the reality with, um, affordable housing, even if defaults start happening, in my opinion, affordable housing is going to be more necessary than ever. Would you agree with that? I would agree. I think, I think the, the big question is when, it's affordable housing is already in demand. Mm-hmm. So when is it in mm-hmm. greater demand? Is it is it more is it a hockey stick? Yeah. Or is it is it more of a you know more of a straight line to it? Um, what's interesting, I haven't seen the latest jobless claims, which I'm sure they're down now. But I think we were close to fifty million. Mm, I think it was pushing. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe I don't know if it was north or south of that. But so fifty million jobless claims is astronom- astronomical, yeah. right? So. That's a four and a half month period. Typically, um, I think I looked at something like February to February, right? 19 to 20. Mm-hmm. And it was a couple hundred thousand a month. And so it went from 200,000 a month to yeah. 50 million over four, four, four and a half months. Let's just yeah. say it's called five months. Um, so what happens in six months from now? Does yeah. that mean half of those folks are back to work? What happens when government assistance runs out and the person who decided who's making $14 an hour decides to stay home because they're making more money? Yeah. And all of a sudden there's no, those jobs are gone because yeah. the people who said, well, I'd rather go work and have my foot in the door somewhere because this money isn't going to last forever. This right. assistance isn't. Yeah. So like there's so many of those variables we just don't know. Yeah. Um, what happens if unemployment goes to 40%? Yeah. Does that affect all residential real estate? Maybe, yeah. right? I mean, I, I feel I feel like affordable housing is probably the most protected. Sure. You know, whether you've got C and D class apartment buildings, whatever it is, but yeah. it's still um it's still just unprecedented numbers. Yeah. Just don't know. Well, and and you know, Kenny McElroy t- has said this several times to us, you know, just like looking at history. What happened last time? But I heard him say um, I don't know, it's been a few months ago, but this is unprecedented and you were just kind of hitting on that. So there's certain things that we can look backwards and say, okay, here's what happened then. One of the normal trends that happens is, you know, in a, in a correction or a reset, like 2008, a lot of people lost their homes. And so as people were losing their homes, they needed to move into apartment buildings. And so all of this is a kind of a short term, um, issue and it takes some time for that all to flush out. But I think what we're seeing right now, I've been talking to a lot of realtors, um, just kind of trying to figure out what's happening. And I think a lot of people right now are because of COVID, which is completely different. They're actually, a lot of people are moving out of, um, city centers 
They're moving out of apartment complexes because they were trapped with two and three kids that used to go to school and now they're trapped at home and the kids can't go outside and play and they're having to go from story number three all the way down and they're worried about touching stuff. This is all unprecedented. Yeah. And so people are moving out of apartments to houses. This is one of the things that a realtor that I was talking the other day to, this is what he was saying. Part of the demand is people are moving from urban areas to more rural areas. And that could be even like a California to a move to like a Texas or an Arizona. But even that people are moving out of like a central Phoenix to like a suburb, right? Because they want a little bit more room and there's not as much chaos. But that being said, the reason why I'm saying all that, um, this cycle could be a little bit different because people are moving out of apartments right now and into homes. But the thing is, is when, when people start losing their homes, the trend is to go back to um, whether it's apartments or, you know, manufactured housing or whatever. So it's not going to be exactly the same, but no matter what, to your point, when something like this happens, the demand and need for affordable housing is there. And if people start to lose their homes and as a real estate investor, we never ask or want that, but the reality is you're there to fill a need. Right. Right. And I think what's, what's so interesting is this, there, there could have been a counter argument to that years ago where you would say, well, if you look at some of these, let's just say, um, tertiary markets in the Midwest, and maybe there's not the huge job centers there, but you've got maybe an Amazon fulfillment moves mm-hmm. in, and that's the Walmarts and the mm-hmm. Costcos and the, like, really the, the, the service industries, right, the essential service. Mm-hmm. So you could, you could argue that there were less people in those markets, and they started to go towards, like, a Dallas, Texas, because mm-hmm. Dallas was growing, and what was downtown Dallas... 10 years ago is no longer that's on the outskirts now, yeah. right? Or whatever those examples, especially areas that are um, not landlocked, right? And then now we're seeing, I think, what feels like is a lot of people that are leaving these big markets mm-hmm. to go to, well, we don't have to work at the office anymore. We mm-hmm. can work anywhere. Yeah. So do we want to stay in our very expensive uh, apartment in New York City or do we want to move to a suburb in Connecticut where it's less expensive and you get a you know, quarter of an acre of land? New York City is obviously a very extreme yeah. example, but um, so what happens to office building and mm-hmm. that, you know, there are certainly tech companies that are like, our employees can stay at home forever. Yeah. <laughs> so how, what's the percent that follows suit? Yeah. And then how does that, so that's going to take a while to really yep. trickle down, I think. Right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's really interesting. Well, even in our company alone, I mean, we've found that there's, there's a small percentage of our employees that actually need, and I say need in a, in a, with a light footprint need slash want to be together. Um, right. You know, we've realized that even certain departments don't necessarily need to be together every day. So, and I think that a lot of tech companies are looking at that too. I think I saw Twitter, there's like 18% of their workforce that actually feel like they feel like needs to come back to the office yeah. at some level. So it's, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. Very Such a great point. Um, I saw, I saw a thing the other day or I was listening to, um, a report. And so, so back to what you were talking about with, whether it's unemployment and, and the level of unemployment. So all of this, um, additional unemployment and all of that is not actually adding to the economy. It's filling a gap, um, that existed. Right. And so people have this false sense that, um, there's all this additional capital and stuff flowing into the market, but it's really not. Because that, that, you know, 25, 30, 40% unemployment, those people are getting taken care of by the government. We're getting our stimulus checks and everything else. But the reality is that's not additional money or capital that's flowing into the market. It's just filling a gap that existed. And so that's another thing that, um, and I don't want to get too in the weeds on that, but the reality is I think there's this false sense that people um, feel like there's a bunch of extra money, but there's really not. They're just getting money that they would have had anyway. And so I think the effects of that are going to be hitting us real shortly. The other, the other side to that, I think through one of my, um, uh, one of my EO friends here in Arizona who said they, uh, they had a friend who owns, um, I think maybe some Best Buys. Mm. And so Best Buy, I think in once that first stimulus check hit that $1,200, there were certain, um, uh, retail, like a Best Buy that literally had not record setting, but really strong months during that time. So that was someone that 
got that $1,200 and whether they were out of work or not, they're like, well, well I'm going to go buy an Xbox or a computer. Yeah. So some of that happened. Yeah. Even though you're right, it wasn't, that's, that was filling, that was filling a, a, a gap, right? But some, some establishments um, really, I think, uh, profited from that. Well, but it's the same conversation. I'm not saying that people aren't spending that money. Right. But people feel like it's extra money. Right. And it's really not extra money. It's just filling. They might be making a little bit more on unemployment. But generally speaking, it's not really extra money that's that's moving through their hands. It's just catching up. And so that yep. I think that's going to be a big a big part of the problem. When that music stops, there's a big percentage of people that are still not back to work. Um, in fact, let's just use the number of 40 million. There's 160 million working people in the u.s and so at 40 million that's 25 percent unemployment right um, however you look at it and so you know if that number is that's in the next few months i mean i don't know how this plays out but that's the thing we have to watch for but no matter what it's such a great strong argument for affordable housing right right the other thing that's interesting is you think about some of the the businesses that were created in the subprime subprime crash right you had um you had airbnb you had uber uh, and a couple other that were, I mean, a lot were created, but those were some of the big ones. Mm -hmm. So a lot of innovation yeah. probably happening right now. And you've got all these interesting things like a um, hundred thousand person sports arena or a stadium. Mm. Right. And so for a while it was like, well, that's where Hertz rent a car would park there because no one's driving rent a cars. Yeah. So it's like all of these things are happening. And then Hertz, I think filed for bankruptcy. They're yeah. close. Um, and even back to like a lot of the big box retail, I mean, if you think about the, who went out of business, Circuit City, right? Yeah. So Circuit City probably for years probably felt kind of bulletproof, right? Yeah. I mean, the sales were up and people were buying electronics yeah. and Amazon hadn't completely taken over or wh whoever that segment of the market um, or even malls. I mean, there's some percentage, it's like 21% of retail and malls are supposed to close in the next like mm. two years or some yeah. some crazy number um well who buys a mall yeah right well maybe amazon yeah literally or it's going to get scraped and re repurposed but sure you've, you've got all these things that change and some of them very slowly and then some of them really fast when you go through something like this right like yeah. imagine like a dodger stadium and the real estate that that sits on yeah in the parking lot you're de you're dead in the water totally it's so interesting um i heard that mall of America just defaulted on their first payment of $1.4 billion. Like who, number one, can you imagine that kind of payment? But that that's for a month. They just defaulted on their first month payment of $1.4 million. And to your point, like who, even if who owns that loan, that's the crazy part. Who owns that loan? And it's probably, uh, you know, a CMBS, package of, you know, whether it's life insurance companies or whatever, somebody owns that loan and uh, 1.4 million just got defaulted on and they're, they're, they're not, they're probably not going to get any better anytime soon. And so right. to you, to your beginning point, I mean, this, this could go, this go, could go pretty deep. So there's certain, obviously markets of the investment segment that we're just glad we're not in like mall of America. Yeah. And yeah. to your point on Bulletproof, I mean, Circuit City probably thought they were amazing. Whoever owns Mall of America probably thought that that was going to go on forever. Yep. But we just don't know. Yeah. And malls had, when did malls start? Like the 50s, right? Yeah, or the 60s? Yeah. So it's like, I mean, when I was a kid, that's, you went to the mall, yeah. right? That was a big yep. deal. Yep. So, I mean, the mall, malls had a good, had a good run. Um, the other thing too, which is so interesting, it really just impacts um, residential real estate is, uh, so Chase maybe about two or three months ago, changed their parameters, right? They went from, I think it was, you could be in the mid sixes for a FICO and, you know, put 5%, 5%, 10% down. So they went to a 700 FICO and 20% down minimum. Mm -hmm. I can't remember if the other banks, the other big banks followed. Um, but imagine being in the middle of a loan to yeah. get a home and then COVID hits, yeah. changes, you don't have 20% down, you had a 680 FICO. Yeah. So what do you, well, you have to go rent, right? Mm -hmm. So we hear renter nation yeah. all the time. Um, and I think that that's where a lot is, is heading. I think for a while it was very negative to rent, right? Mm -hmm. And be a renter. But I think that's, I think America in general is growing as not being single family homeowners. That's yeah. just the reality. Yeah, it's so interesting. So you have a podcast called The Impatient Investor. And um, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more where people can find you later. But 
you, you talk, you have a lot of great conversations on there. Um, and I, I've been saying this, like the most important thing that anybody can do right now, in my opinion, is um, take some time and financially educate themselves. And, you know, whether you've got money to invest or you don't, um, financial education is the key to that. Because if you do have money to invest, you should have education. You should educate yourself, um, which is a big part of what you focus on at the impatient investor, right? Mm -hmm. Just the education piece. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, and I think um, the biggest thing is, you know, some of the stuff is slow moving. And what worked for my grandparents mm -hmm. doesn't work today. Right. Right. And, and in general, like our, our, our parents and our grandparents had a very specific way that they, this is in, in obviously broad strokes, right? Yeah. But they had very specific ways that they um, invested and managed their money and mm -hmm. that's all out the window. But th the fight there, there isn't really an education system out there. It certainly isn't in our schools or mm -hmm. colleges for the most part that mm -hmm. teaches people hey, you need multiple streams of income, mm -hmm. you need to diversify, you can't put all your eggs in the stock market, all of all of those things, which yeah. maybe 50 years ago that worked. And, and today, I think, um, today just doesn't work, period. Yeah. And I definitely don't want to go off the conspiracy theory cliff, but at the same time, there's a part of me that thinks that, you know, you go way back to where the Education Association was founded and all of that, and you think about America at that point in time, and it was the Industrial Revolution, they needed to take people off of farms and take them away from, you know, working in dad's store to line managers. Right. Um, we went to a high level of production, right? And so um, whether it was intentional or not, our education system was really designed to create employees. And then we go through something like this. And, um, you know, Karen and I were talking about it the other day. I mean, literally a month before COVID hit, I was, I, I put a post up and said that the average American is one paycheck away from destruction, Right. And everybody knows that. Everybody feels that. But we put our head in the sand and we don't want to talk about it. And so whether it was designed or not designed or intentional or not, um, the education system, we're, we're a byproduct of the education system. And so I think there's nothing more important in this point in time. It's always been important, but now more than ever to get that financial education. Yeah, and I think I mean you and I met in a in a financial in a in an investment mm -hmm. group, right? That yeah. was all about education, and we've got um, good friends that are in that space, and have been both of us have been on um, pretty heavy personal journeys through all this yeah. for for years, right? And um, when when you start, it's uh, especially if you're you're in corporate America, you're a W two person. Uh, it's like drinking th from a fire hose, mm -hmm. right? And you're yeah. starting to read books and you're learning more and you're like, I wonder if that's true and could things be corrupt? <laughs> and you start mm -hmm. to believe that it's, you know, it's so easy to to say, well, COVID-19 and you start to politicize that yeah. and all that. It's kind of like, well, I mean, I'd rather spend my time trying to be a better person and learn more. And um, I think people spend too much time arguing on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that would be another, that'd yeah. be another um, takeaway that I would tell people is just like, don't, don't argue, don't yeah. argue on the internet with strangers. Yeah. Like yeah. it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Well, that's um, Barry, Barry's saying, and I say it all the time, but he always says, you know, get off your can, do what you can and can the rest. I mean, there's only so much you can do. It's a waste of time. Right. So what can I control? Well, what I can control is my inner mindset, my inner narrative, it's like that. It's that saying, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. I mean, we spend so much time, like you said, just trying to dig into all that. And the reality is there's, there's very little that, that really matters at the end of the day on the education piece. So I think this is a good time to segue a little bit and get into your background. So tell us, tell us where you came from and, and, and where you got today, because it's such an interesting, inspiring story. Sure. So, uh, grew up in New Hampshire, mm -hmm. um, in probably sixth grade, started to play guitar, played some music. Uh, high in middle school, uh, became good friends with friends in middle school who were also musicians. Um, got the bug, and then in early high school, probably ninth or tenth grade, um, we started to put a, a band together and needed a drummer, and I was playing guitar. Um, so I went out and said, oh, well, I'll play drums, and bought a little $200 drum set. Uh, we, we practiced for maybe a year or two. We recorded a 12-song uh, demo, and this is cassettes, right? So I graduated high school in 92. So this is, you know, late late 80s, early 90s. Um, put a 12-song put a demo cassette together. Um, 
and one of the we were in a little small town in New Hampshire, Portsmouth, New Hampshire area, and um, the big fifty thousand watt radio station there. We won a, a, a what was called like a Rock Wars contest, and we did like two or three overtime, and it was us and like you know guys in their twenties and thirties, and we ended up winning this contest and the radio station was like, we love you guys. And they ended up playing one song on this big radio station that went into Boston and kind of had this huge, um, radius. And we started to sell, uh, just an unbelievable amount of records. Like we ended up selling like a hundred thousand records mm. when we were in high school. And so I was the, the manager of the band and the drummer at the time. And, um, we had, uh, we were selling out this thousand seat theater, um, we started to, uh, showcase for major labels. We had like 12 major labels show up one time. This is before we were even seniors, um, started to showcase in Boston and New York. They're trying to figure out how to, how to get us into bars and mm. clubs at 17 years old. Right. <laughs> Just really wild. Um, uh, and so ended up, um, signing a development deal with a, with a label and, um, graduated high school um, and then the band kind of started to, to, to fall apart. The singer was, uh, who actually passed a few years ago, was um, starting to use some uh, really heavy, hard drugs, and um, the band just kind of imploded. Uh, but that kind of set me off onto, I started to play um, in a few other bands and touring and doing that for probably until my early uh, early 20s and toured the country and did some really interesting, cool things. And then... Uh, that entire time, I was always had some sort of an admin role. I was either the manager or I was the tour manager, mm. include in, in addition to being the bass player or the drummer or whatever. And so, um, uh, ended up moving to Los Angeles because somehow in my early twenties, I realized I didn't want to be forty years old and trying to be a professional musician. Because I was around, we were in a really big music area, and I saw people who were in their 40s and just struggling, and even though they were so passionate about it, I just wasn't that passionate. It was fun, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I, I, I was like, I'd rather go work in the music business. So I ended up moving to Los Angeles, I don't know, probably 23 years old or something like that, um, and got a job pretty much right away in a little record label and kind of put me on this path in the music industry and then realized that I had um, connections with a lot of um, labels that had come to see us. And so I just started calling those labels and saying, do you have internships? Do you have anything? Um, and maybe about, maybe about two and a half uh, years later, started to interview at William Morris, which is the big talent agency. And we that had packaged the show um, Entourage hmm. created that show, which is all Mark Wahlberg's kind of coming up through the industry with his friends and everything. Um, at the same time, kind of a side story, at the same time I started uh, to get the itch to play a little bit, play to go play bass. So I started um, looking through ads in the Recycler, which was all pre-internet really back then. And so um, started playing with this one band. And we traded music and got together two or three times, and they had just um, signed a publishing deal with a big publishing company called Zamba um, and went into this little crappy studio, uh, rehearsal studio, and they had like $60,000 worth of brand new gear. Hmm. I'm like, How, how'd you guys get this and what's happening? And they're like, oh, well, we just signed a publishing deal. Um, so did that, played with them a bunch of times. They ended up going with the other, it was, I was the runner-up bass player for that band, Got the job at William Morris, which was like a six-month interview process, which is just pretty wild. Um, working at, at William Morris, and probably a year goes by, and my friend called me who was um, uh, managing the Goo Goo Dolls, and he's like, that band you played with just put out their first record, and they sold like 650,000 albums the first week, and it was Linkin Park. Wow. So pretty funny, right? Yeah. So I'm at, I'm at William Morris making like nine cents an hour as an assistant. <laughs> totally. Um, because you're working so much. Yeah, well, just because, you know, the assistants yeah. get punished, right? Yeah. You're making, you're barely making minimum wage. Um, but that was what, what I was there to do, right? I wasn't yeah. there to, that's the that's the fork in the road. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you can control the fork. Yeah. Sometimes you can't. Yeah. Um, and so that kind of set off, and I worked at William Morris for 16 years and represented comedians and bands and had a really good Really good run. Um, it was a great gig, great career, um, and really just I got into real estate probably two thousand eight and nine during the crash, which was just great timing, accidental timing, really. Um, and sometime around that that time, I was like, well, I don't want to be seventy years old and mm -hmm. 
being a talent agent and having yeah. a W two job, even though you make a ton of money, and mm-hmm. just I just wasn't I wasn't built for it. So um, just started to put together an exit, and it was actually through buying residential real estate that kind of got me there. Put a plan together and said I'm going to go buy X number of houses and exit corporate America. Yeah, and so again, a lot of times I talk about the adjust part of that formula because. I mean, I just listening to that, and there's a few follow-up questions that I have, but you couldn't have seen, you know, from, from the beginning that all of a sudden your exit was going to be single family, right? Nope. And then it goes even further. I mean, you go from single family and did pretty well to manufactured housing, right? Right. Um, so that's why I think the adjust part is so important because, and I, I, I heard Gary Keller say that, you know, we tend to overestimate what we can do in one year, but underestimate what we can do in 10. And so when we're setting our goals and and really thinking about what we want, I mean, obviously we have to set goals and we have to measure those results. But at the same time, if you hadn't been flexible enough along the way to follow your intuition, I mean, you, you may have missed opportunities too. Yeah. I think the intuition part is you could probably do just an entire podcast Mm -hmm. on that alone. Just, just having intuition and following that or not following that. Um, What's funny is I was, probably more of an entrepreneur early on, right? Mm -hmm. Because I was paper routes and how do I, you know, how do I get that new bike? Well, I got to go mow a hundred lawns and, you know, just Mm -hmm. driven to do that kind of stuff. Um, The whole band thing in high high school, I mean, you're, you're in a, you're, you're a little business, right? And you're kind of battling the world and someone has to be the manager and deal with all the crap and negotiating um, places to sleep, all the stuff, (laughs) right? All everything that goes in and call the clubs, like pounding the phones to come on, let us go play your club and all that stuff. Um, And, um, and then, and then moved out to be in the, in, in, in the business, in the music business and ended up having a great, a really great gig. And I think through all of being a W-2 employee in that environment, you're dealing with um, pretty wild personalities. You're dealing with, you know, very complex colleagues and all these, yeah. you know, negotiating and volume and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all that stuff. Um, and so each piece of that, you know, let's say I'm on my third life right now, my third career, yeah. let's say, um, every single part of that had pretty cool lessons, mm-hmm. right? And even yep. the corporate America part, it was like I had great lessons and uh, certainly great w- relationships and friendship, friendships that came from that. Um, so I kind of look at it like, you know, maybe back to the, you know, maybe back to the, like the whole concept of the American dream is dead. Someone would have a career that would last their entire life, right? Yeah. Someone would work at whatever, a car, a car manufacturer for 60 years and get a pension. And, um, and I think that's, I think that's all out the window, yeah. right? So, you know, having careers for, or, or having things that you're passionate about that you're doing for 10 years at a time or five years or whatever. Um, I think I, I feel like that's become the new norm. Yeah. Well, and it, again, whether it's right or wrong, um, whether it was designed that way or not, I, it is a shift and whether, we like it or not, that's, that is the new norm, as you said. And so, um, I think where people get in trouble is they get stuck there. Um, and by the way, we're not against W2 employees. I mean, there's people that want to be employed. We're, we're thankful for them. Um, not everybody's cut out to be an entrepreneur, but at the same time, even as a W2 employee, you've got to change the mindset thinking, right? Because your boss isn't coming to save you. I've been saying this a lot lately. Um, I, one of, one of the posts that I think did the best, um, was a a post that we put up that said, your boss will never pay you enough to be his neighbor. And, um, you know, I, I hesitated even putting that up because we have so many employees that we love and appreciate. Um, literally some of our employees I've worked with for 12 years in different capacities. So there's nothing wrong with being a W2 employee, but you've got to shift the mindset. When you said the American dream is dead. Um, that form of the American dream is dead. Yeah. But the other side of that is that creates a freedom if you embrace it that only only you have control over, and it could be the best thing that ever happened. Um, America was actually built on entrepreneurs, um, entrepreneurship, people going out and hustling and working hard. And so whether you're a W-2 employee or you're an investor, it doesn't really matter. You need to have multiple streams of income. I think that brings it back to... Um, you know, what's important. So I think the other, the other part of that, which is the other part of the American dream is dead is I I agree that America was really built on entrepreneurship. That was certainly people leading the, the way and leading the charge. And just as important to that 
if you worked really hard as a W-2 employee, um, you could have one job. Mm. You could be taken you, care of. Yeah, you could take care of your family, like on one you know, you're not, you're not a millionaire, right? You're not mm-hmm. making a million dollars a year. You're making a hardworking salary, lower middle class and raise kids and own a home mm-hmm. and all of that. Um, I, and that's, that's for the most part out the window. So mm-hmm. there's very little loyalty in that format anymore, I think. Um, and also it's pretty, pretty clear that just salaries haven't kept up with expenses. Mm-hmm. So that's a big thing, right? Yeah. So you were making X dollars back in the fifties and that had a lot more buying power than it does now, right? Like how yeah. many, how many, um, we, we have so many people in our world that have four jobs between mom and dad, mm-hmm. right? And they're struggling, right? Yeah. Like paycheck to paycheck, they can't work anymore, yeah. right? They're working two jobs or three jobs between two people. Um, that's really tough. And yeah. so I don't see, I don't see much of a, uh, an end in sight in, unless something drastic happens yeah. and maybe it's education that totally changes. Maybe it's, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone has the answers, but, um, that's pretty clear, right? Yeah. That's the path. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things that are coming through COVID. And again, I'm, <laughs> I want to be really careful. We don't get political or I don't have an agenda, but I don't want to push agendas either, but there's a lot of things that are transitioning right now too. Um, you know, education, there's literally, um, I saw a statistic the other day and, and I, I love teachers. I, I love the school system, <laughs> but the reality is we've been saying for a long time, there's problems with the school system. Um, and I saw something the other day, the, if you take the budget for the school system across the country, the average classroom has a $285,000 budget. Wow. Now, most teachers probably wouldn't know that. And that's, that's a huge number. Now it doesn't mean that that classroom actually gets that 285,000, but if you take the entire education system budget and the number of classrooms, it's $285,000 per classroom. The average teacher makes, I think $62,000 a year or something like that. And so somebody said, whoever put this statistic up said, where's all that other money going? Well, I did some research and the average high school that was built in 2014 cost $42 million dollars. That's the average high school. And so when you look at the high school facilities and the administration facilities and the busing and all of that stuff, there's so much. So what what's... Con- contracts with the builders. Totally, right? yeah. totally. And then the maintenance, so that doesn't even include the maintenance. I mean, we're in real estate investing. We know how much it costs to maintain buildings. And so, yeah, the building costs $42 million to build, but what about the maintenance that's required every year? And so... You know, the frustration is constantly on the front line. You, obvi- you always see the battle between the teachers and the unions and, you know, the administrators. Like, we're not getting paid enough. And that's true. The teachers that are doing the front line work, they're not making enough money. I understand that. But the problem is the system as a whole. And so right. the reason why I'm even bringing that up right now is because COVID is going to adjust a lot of things. I mean, we've realized just as we said with, you know, workers and being, able, being having to go to, you know, retail buildings and commercial buildings. Well, it's the same thing with schools. Um, do we actually have to go to a school building to get a good education? Do we actually have to go to college to get a good education? Right. I mean, how many people went to YouTube University for the first time in the last 90 days for free and learned more about financial education than they've ever learned in school? Yeah, probably a big percentage, right? Yeah. There's a lot of interesting things coming from uh, this period of time that we're in. and it, But it, no matter what, it's going to be painful. And back to the heartstrings thing, you know, you, when you said that you know, a lot of moms and dads are both working two jobs. So a lot of households are working four jobs combined. You know, I don't, I don't know where all that goes, but at the same time, we can't put it in the government's hands to solve that for us. And we also can't rely on our boss or someone else to solve that for us. We've got to get educated and we've got to go out there and figure out what we can do. And the only way to get away from working four jobs is to change your goals, change your perspective and, and educate yourself in one way or another, figure out how to go out there and make more streams of income. Right. Right. And, and other than, you know, the, the, the folks that are, that are working two jobs each, I mean, there's always, there's always time in the day, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, mm-hmm. that's, that's always a, a good excuse, right? Like, right. oh, we're, every, everyone's so busy, um, which is true a lot of the time, sure. but there's always time, mm-hmm. right? You can, you can watch an hour or less of TV. You can yeah. read more. You can, you know, listen, listen, I, I remember when I started to get into podcasts, probably back in, 
must have been like mid 2000, like 2005 or six or seven. Um, it was incredible. Right. And so instead of rolling calls on the way to work or whatever, or just making phone calls, like I listened to podcasts for mm-hmm. an hour a day. Right. And I was like, wow, I can almost get through an entire book every week yeah. or a bunch of podcasts or whatever it is. Um, so it's powerful, right? Yeah. But you have to want, you have to want to learn. Yeah. And if you're, if you're stuck on that and, um, if you're, if you're complacent and not happy and aren't willing to make changes, that's, that's kind of where you're, you're going to run into some problems, I think. Yeah. I, I've said this a lot the last six or eight months. I mean, I've lived it for a long time, but I can never really put it into words and, um, the way it finally came to words for me until the pain of your current situation becomes stronger than the amount of pain it's going to take to change that you're not going to do anything about it. And like you said, I mean, there's always, you know, there's always more time in the day. The the reality is, is it's excuses. And I'm not speaking directly. Um, you know, no matter what, at the end of the day, our boss isn't coming to save us. The government's not coming to save us. So we need to figure out how to take that future into our own hands. And until the pain of your current situation becomes more painful than what it's going to take to it's it's the same way with i mean you know my health is probably my weakest area i hate exercising but until that pain becomes you know stronger than that i'm just going to keep making excuses right right so we all have them in different areas but um what i appreciate about you and i love your story and i've just really um i'm i'm blessed to call you a partner um i just i love your perspective on everything um and you know, when you talk about not waiting to respond, um, you're just, you truly are a curious and you're just an amazing listener. Um, you're a great support person. So you add so much value on your podcast. Where can people find you? What, um, what's the best place for them to? Yeah. Thanks. And really been enjoying the, the work that, that you're doing and the guests. You've had some pretty great guests. I, I listened to the, um, uh, the last one I w- listened to was the Barry Lip- Lipparelli, which is <laughs> very cool for a lot of reasons, yeah. right? A, because, um, I've heard you talk about him so much mm-hmm. and the other is just like, he's just, he's fascinating, yeah. right? <laughs> the way his brain thinks. And totally. It's really cool. So, um, yeah, the impatient investor, it's, it's, pr- it's pretty new. I think we're on six weeks out six weeks ago. Uh, it's the impatient investor.com. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Um, it's a little bit different it's kind of a shorter format maybe one guest a month kind of a thing and the rest of it's just um very topical and just taking trying to peel um peel apart big uh complex topics and try to make them as simple as possible which is uh which is challenging but it's been it's Mm -hmm. been rewarding it's been a lot of fun yeah well and that you know back to the education piece and how important that is i think that's why people should find your podcast and listen to it because there's just a lot of great information that you're talking about in there that really does um, transform the the way we think and the mindset behind it. So, and you obviously put a lot of time and energy into the nuts and bolts behind it too. It's not just theoretical information. I mean, you're you're very skilled at it. So, yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. anything else you want to talk about? No, I've been looking forward to this, and uh, it's been a great great time hanging with you. Yeah, appreciate you, man. Yeah, appreciate you. If you've found value in this episode, and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom. I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you'd take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.